Hello, humans in podcast land. Welcome back. My guest today is none other than longtime friend of the show and current modern wisdom all-time download record holder, George Mack. We're talking about mental models, one of my favorite topics. Having the ability to make good decisions is one of the most important skills you can have in life, and hopefully today we will provide you with some more tools to add into your mental model utility belt that will make your choices even more accurate. We are taking some brilliant learnings from people like Nassim Taleb, Naval Ravikant, Winston Churchill, and many more. Don't forget, if you are new here, or even if you're a long-time listener who hasn't pressed the subscribe button yet, go and do it now. It will take less than three seconds, and it will make me very happy indeed. Also, if you have any friends that you think would enjoy this show, I would appreciate nothing more than you sending it to them. That is the way that this show is growing. The plays and the listenership are absolutely (laughs) flying through the ceiling, and that is only due to assistance and support from people like you. So the more people that you can send it to, the more that you recommend it, the bigger it gets, which allows me to access even more fascinating humans to deliver directly into your ears. I keep getting messages about the Patreon as well. I am on with that. Me and Video Guy Dean are setting that up as quickly as we can. So the Modern Wisdom Patreon will be here very soon. I will keep you updated. In other news, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by The Protein Works. That's right, they have given me my own shopfront, theproteinworks.com slash modern wisdom. You can see all of the products that I use and recommend from The Protein Works. Today, I'm talking about their Super Greens Powder, the best way to get extra micronutrients into your diet. If you think, "Ah, probably should eat a little bit more fruit and veg, like everybody, want my immune system to be operating well so that I don't get coronavirus, this is the best way to do it. Also, their steel shakers are amazing. You need a steel shaker in your life. If you're still drinking out of a plastic bottle, bring yourself into the 21st century with a steel shaker. Their protein crunkies, literally everything. I absolutely adore their range, and I'm so happy to have them as a sponsor. Please head to theproteinworks.com slash modernwisdom and enter the code MODERN35 for 35% off everything. It's already super cheap. And then Modern35 gets 35% off everything site-wide. That's theproteinworks.com slash modernwisdom. But for now, it's time to get better at making decisions with the wise and wonderful George Mack. Oh yeah, P.S., While this music's playing, go and check if you've pressed the subscribe button. And if not, give it a hit for me. Tap, tap, tap it, tap, tap it, tap, tap, tap it away. Long awaited return to modern wisdom. How are you, brother? I'm good, I'm good. How are you? Very, very well. The crowd has been anticipating this one for a long time. You feeling ready? Yeah, as ready as you can be, I guess. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So my first question, you are currently the title holder of Modern Wisdom's most ever played episode. So just looking at the best played, you're first, then Dr. Eric Feigelding explaining about a global pandemic Two episodes with Morgan Housel, who used to write for The Motley Fool. Ben Greenfield, 
uh, Brian McKenzie, then another episode with you, Derek Sivers, John Asaraf, and Aubrey Marcus. So that that comes out the top 10. Why do you think our episode, <laughs> our first one specifically, and then the second one, why do you think that resonated so hard? Bot farms, mainly. <laughs> bot, bot farms everywhere. It, took, it, it was a two to three month operation um, involving about 10 to 20,000 pounds, um, <laughs> VPNs, different IP addresses, because you need it all to come from like individual phones as well, but it was well worth the effort, yeah. Yeah, because we also made our episode was the fourth best podcast of 2019 as voted by Podcast Notes uh, audience. So the bot farm also useful for that as well. Yeah, yeah, they do. They do all sorts. I'm trying to now uh, di- diverse into politics as well. We'll, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, let's say that someone hasn't listened to our first two episodes, which they should totally go back and check out. Let's say that they haven't. What is a mental model? Give us the Twitter bio description of mental models. Uh, I always actually struggle with this one. Um, I guess the way I view it is like metaphors, analogies, or, or just ways of taking principles from different disciplines and then almost trying to keep them in your own mental toolkit that you can that you can apply. I just find it a fun way of trying to put together a world with trillions of different inputs. I get it. Yeah, I think the the analogy you used on the first episode was if you think of your brain as the operating system, mental models are the different apps that you can install to give you functionality and to improve your decision making. And that's now, although it's copyrighted George McGill 2019, I've been using that as like my my one-liner too. So let's get started. What have you been thinking about recently? What are you dropping on us today? Yeah, um, I'm just just thinking. I've got a few things here. So the, the what I was trying to think what we haven't been through as well. So try and keep things a bit fresh. Yes. Otherwise, it's just it's just a repeat, right? A repeat after a repeat. So the one that I've been thinking about a lot, uh, just in general, because it it comes so it comes so difficult to me as a person, um, and maybe it was like a, a certain generation I was brought up upon of like leverage and what that like actually means, like the ability. The way I view leverage is um, similar to way uh, I think it's Peter Thiel talks about technology, which is the ability to do more with less. Um, and that for me, of a, a generation who was brought up on YouTube videos talking about 16 hour work days and like hustle, 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 hustle is a very hard concept to sort of wrap your head around. And when it, when it started to begin to click for me, because I was always I was always one of those people who want to like talk about how hard they work and you realize a lot of that's just signaling. It's just bollocks. It's not actually achieving a result. Um, was the, if, I don't know if it might still be up there, but there's something called Steve Jobs's lost tapes. Have you seen it? No, it's fantastic. So it's an interview with Steve Jobs. I think just before he goes back to Apple for the second time, I um, mean like 1994, maybe. Um, and the interview was lost for years. They only found it in like 2016, 2015, around about then. And there's a bit in it um, where I think he's used this metaphor elsewhere as well, but there's a bit in it where he talks about reading something when he was early on, like a study in scientific America, where they looked at the efficiency of locomotion for all the animals um, <laughs> on Earth. Um, and the, I think it was the condor, which is a bird that won 
and the human being, which is the sort of, I don't know, you look, we like to think of ourselves as probably the best animal on the planet, right? Look at all the shit we've done. We was ranked like around about the third way down the list. But what was interesting, Steve says that somebody had the genius to like test a human being on a bicycle and a human being on a bicycle beat the condor, absolutely destroyed every single animal on there. And you realize that that's what human beings are. We're just tool makers, right? Bro, and that is so good. So the condor, what is, is condor type of bird? Is it like a big-legged bird or something? It's a bird, yeah. It's like a, an ostrich? It's like or an eagle-looking bird. No, like like a flying bird. Okay. Like the old kind of birds. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's how leverage works by implementing tools because it enhances your ability. Your natural abilities are then augmented. Mm-hmm. And then big, uh, Naval has... Um, uh, like four forms of leverage that always stick with me. So you have, in terms of like modern, like more business side of things, you've got uh, the traditional ones, which are like people leverage, i.e. Chris has a staff of 50 working for him. And therefore he can essentially put out the strategy, put out the systems, put out the products in place. And then those 50 people provide a service um, or build things for him. Therefore his uh, outputs, therefore then become even greater than his inputs. Um, you have like financial leverage, which is like the Buffett style of things where you invest X and you get a return of Y and you use your money as a form of leverage. So those are the two old school ones, but the two new ones, which are fascinating are uh, code-based leverage, which is obviously powering like Skype as we speak right now, or any, like, like you've got Shopify, you've got Amazon, all these forms of leverage where Jeff Bezos or Toby who runs Shopify aren't working harder than us, but they have code they have machines, or in my case, bots working 24-7 for them uh, that works way harder. And then you've got the final one, which I guess is where you specialize in is like media leverage that rather than us just having this conversation and only us being able to hear in it, you have the ability now to be able to distribute it en masse to lots of people without putting in any extra work. There's no extra cost of replication for what you're doing. Um, so though, yeah, those are the four forms of leverage. And once you once you actually look around and then any like business you go in, you go, oh, shit, there's like people leverage, there's media leverage, there's code leverage, <laughs> and you begin to see it everywhere. And it's fascinating. That's super cool. Yeah, you're totally correct. Everybody knows this, right? I guess there must be a network leverage as well. I don't know how that would fall in. But it's another one. Um, someone saying, I love the Modern Wisdom podcast. That host, Chris, is handsome and great. And then telling their friend. One of my bots. Yeah, but one of your bots. When one of your bots <laughs> says that. Um, that is not me putting in the work to source that new listener, right? Um, the fact that that episode, that first episode between us, it's not had any paid ads behind it, but for some reason, because of the bots, it's done so well and it's gone and done that. Also to the people listening, um, it might be worth playing a game of either Naval Bingo or Buffett Bingo today and i'm Munga bingo, so, I'm Munga yeah. bingo yeah and i'm clocking up i'm clocking up one for naval and one for one for buffett so far um so how can people perhaps use leverage you know i'm not i'm not jeff bezos people listening ain't jeff bezos are there any ways that people can apply leverage like just at a small scale or in, in an immediate sort of uh, example in their life um, I, I, obviously it's so case specific to every individual. And I think sometimes an issue with ideas like this is that people try and like mass distribute it to everybody. And it's, it's so case dependent, but I just think like looking at trying to reduce your inputs whilst also maximizing your output. So however that may be right, whether that's 
via media and you have a greater audience that way or you hire people who you trust that then obviously work for you and then you can try and increase things that way um i think yeah i think it's so subject specific but i think the two ones that are only seem to be getting greater and greater are uh media leverage and code leverage but i also think like brand leverage like i was uh i was watching an interview the rogan and elon musk interview the new um, one the new one, the new one. And I caught myself like, obviously, I mean, you can, you, you end up on a Twitter game where you can find, I find it quite interesting where you find people who obviously think he's the, the, the smartest man ever. And then you have like the trolls or, or maybe rational critics, I don't know, who criticize various different things. But even I caught myself like falling into the brand where I'd listen to the interview and literally anything I, I'd hear him say, I was then trying to rationalize it into genius. And don't get me wrong, a lot of it probably <laughs> is. But that power of like a brand Oprah has or even like the, the most controversial example where Trump has now where people use these brands as a form of leverage and it works for them. And they can say something that if somebody else said, all of us, it can be interpreted as genius or they get a second chance or they have defenders for them just around a like a brand, so to speak. And I think brands is another form of leverage that doesn't get discussed enough because it's it's hard to pinpoint. It's hard to really explain, but we all like feel it. It's the icing on the cake, which makes everyone presume that it's going to taste good before they even eat it. I think that's one way to look at it, right? That you you see this cake and you're like, oh my God, not only is this cake coming out of that bakery that I've eaten at before and everyone else eats at this bakery and they all think it's mint and I've eaten there before and I think it's mint and this cake looks so good. It's got all the trappings of the previous ones. But obviously, as you've hit on there, that can become kind of a little bit of a Trojan horse that delivers something that's got less substance. You hit it with a hammer and you find out it's hollow inside as opposed to filled with delicious jam and cream filling, which is mm -hmm. what we want. Um You've touched on two things which link into... I haven't got that many points. This is a platform for you to do your thing and to drop some bombs. But I've got two things that link into what you've come up with there. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give right. a couple of bits. We haven't done multiplied by zero yet. Have you heard of that mental model? Yeah, yeah. That's... Um it's an intro. It's just, it's like, it's not really a complex one. It's a real simple, like everybody, like uh, year three maths, I guess, knows that <laughs> you can have 10 billion times 322 million, uh, add 52 billion. But if you then take that number and multiply it by zero, you end up with <laughs> zero. Um, so I guess it's kind of Taleb's thing of like, try and avoid absolute ruin, try and avoid, um, yeah, that, that multiplier by zero, i.e. Uh, if you get caught as an athlete doing steroids, you're, you're, you're gone, basically. Like, regardless it's very hard. of talent, yeah. regardless of whatever's going on. Yeah, it identifies the weakest link in the chain. and No, no system is stronger than its weakest component, right? Um, but the same could be made for um, you have spent all your life uh, working on longevity, you've been intermittent fasting, you've not been eating processed foods, you don't drink alcohol, you don't smoke, you don't do drugs, but one day you decide to drive without your seatbelt on and you get into a car crash. Like, <laughs> you're very yeah. dead. You know, you were, you, it doesn't matter how healthy you are when you're very dead. And the same thing goes for um, you are working real hard on your finances, on liberating yourself so that you have freedom, so that you can pursue the things that you want, so that you don't have any financial burdens or any responsibilities or whatever it might be. But 
upon one drunken night of unprotected sex, either you get pregnant or you get somebody pregnant. And then there is a very big burden that you need to uh, pursue. You know, you go, you go look after that. And it's like, okay, that's multiplying by zero. Like doesn't matter all the good stuff, all the good stuff you've done in the past. There is something now, which is such a large burden. Maybe the, maybe it's not multiplying by zero for the kid, but it's, definitely putting a very hard stop, you know, on a lot of the things that you that you potentially had planned. And the point is that it wasn't something that was planned. Um, so yeah, multiplied by zero is a really important one, I think, for people to just look at where the, the weakest links in their chain are, right? Like a lot of the time we see this with productivity. People say, oh, mate, I posted an image of Alpha Brain the other day. I don't take it that much, um, just a nootropic. And I got tons and tons of messages. Bro, is this any good? Like, tell me, like, you know, what, what are the sort of effects? I might try and get it. And it's expensive as hell. You've got to pay an import charge from on it in the US because they haven't sorted the, like, their customs tracking thing either. Um, but if I post something up about uh, Cal Newport's deep work or doing Pomodoros or like a new productivity strategy, no one cares. And it's like, because that is the weakest link in their chain. And often it's the one that shows kind of the most, um, uh, the most discomfort is associated with it. Yeah, this, it's a similar, like a bit of a model I've been thinking about of late as well, which is like product versus marketing. Um, as somebody who's a marketeer or operates in the marketing world, you definitely, I don't know, we, I don't know if Dean can put it in, but, or we can attach it to the notes, but there's a recent like Google trends of like the word best and the word cheap and best is going like that and cheap over time is just going like that. Okay. And I think that's a result of, a huge a huge focus on marketing and these like hacks and without fixing the product like the best i always use the best example of like is the fire festival like fire festival for me is one of the like the most fascinating business cases where as as deceitful and arguably wrong what uh well definitely wrong what he did you cannot deny that guy was a genius marketer and a genius salesperson yeah and if you look at like great combos like if you look at uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, you had Jobs, who obviously was a marketing genius, and then you had Wozniak, who was a product genius. And obviously Jobs was like a product genius as well, but that combination of marketing and product is what made those guys so strong. And I find that <laughs> if you have Ja Rule as your business partner, um, and not so, like, I always wonder if he had a Steve Wozniak, how different would that fire festival have turned out? If he had like a key for a boy who can like execute and focus on the operations and made that party happen. Like maybe he would be a billionaire right now. Maybe he would be one of the best entrepreneurs of our generation. But the fact that he had Ja Rule, I always wonder like if Steve Jobs had Ja Rule, how different would it have been? Um, <laughs> but, like, I, if I had Ja Rule, fuck knows what I'd be doing. So I do sometimes wonder like, like the, the product and the marketing, because you see it more and more. Like what's fascinating if you one of the holes I've been down in quarantine is the Toby Lucky, who's like the shop advice CEO. I think he's such a uh, honest, humble, and like clear thinker. And what's fascinating is, as opposed sometimes, and I think wrongly by the media, Shopify and Amazon are where Amazon are centralizing uh, e-commerce and uh, Shopify are decentralizing it and making it about the merchants. Um, and people see Lucky and Bezos as almost two opposing figures, which I don't think is true. Um, and I think they both admit that. But if you look at their like shareholders' letters from like 2015 or even Bezos, like 1999, it's always about two things: we don't care about short-term revenues, we don't care about all this marketing stuff. All we care about is long-term thinking and customer satisfaction. So even like Shopify, 
one thing in like growth marketing that brands will do like, if you was a growth marketer and you came in at shopify early doors one of the things you would have said to do is always have powered by shopify on the store therefore like mailchimp do this so therefore when somebody comes on the store and sees it they'll go oh this is shopify i'll then use it and as a result shopify would have a way bigger brand because they basically power like over 100 billion um in e-commerce revenue and there's so many people who don't know what shopify is who doesn't exist in this but you know for a fact they bought from a shopify store but toby purposely was so merchant focused refused to have that powered by shopify there um because he knew that actually providing the merchants with as much value in the short term would provide so much more long-term value so you put the product in that case before the marketing and i think we're going to see a shift more and more towards that i do think market is still super valuable but when you are so marketing focused so hack focused it only gets you so far and i think that everybody cares more about the product at the end of the day even from just a non-financial viewpoint as well there's more integrity associated with actually fulfilling the thing that you're saying that you're doing if your company is there to enable the e-commerce provider the e-commerce uh, store uh, to maximize everything that they do like put your money where your mouth is you know like if you take your your thumbnail watermark away and that makes an impact that actually makes the store look better then really if you're sticking to your values and that is your true values regardless of what it does to revenue you should be doing it you know and uh, again in this world of shareholder agreements and and uh, yearly annual reports and stuff like that that is the it's going to stand out not only does it give you distinctiveness um but it genuinely should be more fulfilling to you the only problem is when you've got shareholders whose desire for the bottom line outweighs that I guess you mentioned before as well, fire festivals, something I've been thinking about so much since I watched the documentary, which is phenomenal, um, is how seduced we all are by success. Right. So that guy, who's the guy that run it? What was his name again? Is it Billy something? Billy, Far Billy McFarlane. That's it. Um, so Billy McFarland, the only reason that people slated him and that he's a crook and that he's trying to take advantage of people is because he failed. If he'd succeeded, even if he'd partially succeeded and it hadn't been a total nightmare, he would have been hailed as marketing genius, new Steve Jobs, this, that, and the other. There would have been some people that said, I think this is a, a, a um, unfair way of doing marketing. I think that he's leveraging the lowest common denominator of influencer marketing and stuff like that. But had he have farted out a semi-successful festival, right? People would have said, oh my God, Look at what this guy's achieved. Look at how phenomenal the marketing was. Like next year is going to be insane because we are so seduced by the end product. It's success by any means, right? Everybody just cares about, okay, can is this person the next hype train? Is this person the next Steve Jobs? Is this person the next whatever it might be? And um, yeah, I realized that the only reason that people slated him was because the festival failed really not because of his methods in getting there mm -hmm. um, i can't i know i kind of i kind of get what you mean but i think that then just goes back to the whole product and marketing thing that if you have the best um cbo facebook campaign where you have 10 ad sets structured perfectly and you've used dynamic creative testing to a b test everything and you're getting uh, eight roas on a pair of jeans but the 
the jeans turn up and there's a fucking rip through the crotch part, people are going to be mad at you. Right? And I think rightly so, right? If you've, if you've advertised a product that isn't, um, isn't good enough, like the, I, think, I think that's almost a good thing. You know? I think that this focus on the product is, is super important. And I think it's the, going to be even a greater and greater focus in the next 10, 20 years. I would, I would agree. Also, there is a, um, uh, model that I got introduced to by Richard Shotton, who, uh, have you listened to that episode yet? I listened to the first one. I've not listened to the second one. Good. Because that means I can tell you this for the first time. Cool. Um, so in a study, there was a number of different, uh, aphorisms that were given to people like these sort of rules. Right. And, um, for instance, woes unite foes, right? That's one of them. But in another version of the study, they might have been told woes unite enemies. And what that indicated, and this was run over a number of different aphorisms, a number of different sentences, what it indicated was that people see rhyming sentences as more believable than ones that don't rhyme. And when they were asked in reflection, so why was it that you chose the, the this is the most believable one or whatever? They didn't, no one said, like, oh, it was because it rhymed. And even at, they asked them, they were like, oh, so was it because it rhymed? No, 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 it's got nothing to do with that. It's just, you know, I really feel like it connects with me and whatever it might be. But that wasn't the truth. When you control for everything, it wasn't the truth. It's because it rhymed. What that tells us is that mental fluency is associated with truthfulness. And that has such huge implications, right? You know, Grant Cardone is someone who's unbelievably fluent. The way he's able to deliver things with power and with conviction and all this sort of stuff. And yet there's entire websites dedicated to calling him out for some of the stuff that he does. Now, that's not to make a, a value call on whatever, whether it's, it's true or false, how he operates his business. But you can't deny the fact that that is someone who is using mental fluency to augment their truthfulness, Right. And I think that that kind of links into what you're saying there with this kind of marketing first approach, um, which again, hit it with a hammer, you find there's nothing inside. It's, it's dangerous. Yeah, I, I agree. It takes on to like a, a model I've been thinking about of late, which I kind of call like the linguistic matrix or like the linguistic red pill. And I realized that how much of your reality is just shaped by the words that you have available um, and the ability to then put like placeholders uh on things so even like, like a word that like schadenfreude for example is a word that's uh i think it's german it's a very english thing of taking pleasure in somebody else's failure or pain um the ability to actually have that chunked into a word ability give, a, a com completely gives you an ability to understand reality slightly differently but i think if you look right now like I, one thing i absolutely hate because it's just a team sport is that most modern politics and if you realize, if you if you look at most of these like uh, two hundred eighty character debates on Twitter where there's just all caps and swear words and Clap calling anybody with ists at the end or yeah it's just it's, both both teams are exactly the same and um, one of the things that is often an issue is that there's a whole if you can imagine they've got this whole like Jenga tower that this debate is based on and they're sword fighting at the top of this Jenga tower but they still never ever define the fundamental words that they're using. So like sometimes they'll be debating about a specific word without actually defining it. Like even like two, two like what examples I have 
that are not political, but let's say the word like ego, for example, is an interesting one. Use it for so many different meanings that then two, I can then sometimes try and understand something, but it's within the word ego, I've got five different meanings and I think it completely uh, distorts my, my view of reality. So like people will use ego, for example, in the Kanye West sense of um, like thinking that I'm the fucking man and uh, like nobody can stop me that style or like the Michael Jordan on the court style of ego. And then like the more like Buddhist Eckhart Tolle perspective of ego is the sense of self, the sense that you're uh, an individual and you're not completely just an organism connected to all the billions of organisms out there. And I find that we actually should define the, the individual instances within that to even have a clear understanding of reality. Like one, one of them that's fascinating as well is the word entrepreneur because Within the word entrepreneur, there's so many different kinds of entrepreneurs. My favorite example is Joe Rogan. Like, talk about media leverage. He has uh, maybe what, like four or five members of staff, like him, Jamie, and I'm sure he's got a few other people behind the scenes. Does like a hundred plus mil revenue from his podcast alone. You, you know, so he what, doesn't but, even have a personal assistant. Does he not? No, he said it on a podcast the other day. He says he refuses to have a personal assistant. He's like, fuck that. What do I need someone to just tell me when the t- the train tickets are booked for? Tell me when my flight leaves. It's like I'll. Book the flight myself, motherfucker. So funny. That's probably why he's quite well connected to everything that's going on as well. I think that's probably actually an advance, advantage to him. But he, yeah, he has insane media leverage. Um, but uh, one of the things that you wouldn't be able to say about Joe is that he's like an entrepreneur. Because like, as soon as you think of entrepreneur, you think of like, okay, I'll give him 10 grand, he'll flip it into 20 grand and he'll do all these sales. That's not Rogan in the slightest. Like he's not a CEO, he's not that kind of guy, but he has a business worth over a hundred million dollars that employs a few members of staff with what, like 99% margins. <laughs> how is that? How is no cost. Uh, but there's an issue with that, that we need to then define the words within the words um, because we end up just keep chunking, chunking further and up. And we and that's one of the reasons why I love uh, Eric Weinstein, for example, because he just creates words all the time. And I find that you go through your whole life with like these words that have been given to you rather than trying to actually create your own vocabulary based off what you're seeing in reality. You're always trying to outsource people to make words for you. It's really weird. I think this probably strikes at why so many people talk past each other online. When you think you've got <clears throat> differing points of view, you have um, two people that inherently want to disagree, so they're already looking for that disagreement, perhaps. Then they're all excited and, and anxious and stuff for being online and typing away, smashing the keyboard. And then even the terms that they are using, that they are debating, aren't agreed on. It's like, bro, you're never, you might as well be speaking different language. You know, you're never going to make that work. And this, I keep bringing this up. I'm going to do it again. If you have not read 1984, you have to go and read it, especially if you like the idea of what George is talking about here. I learned more from 1984 about the way that I operate than I have done from a lot of personal development, self-development books, right? And the thing that it taught me was that the ability to articulate words, the ability to put your thoughts into a noise that comes out of your mouth or into words that go down on paper is directly proportional to the quality of your thoughts. Like, mm. if you can't say it, it never takes form. And if it never takes form, it's no longer an actual concept. It's just a notion. You know, it's like the smell of the thing that you think. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. It's kind of a bit like that. So roll that forward. The implication is 
If you want better thoughts, you need a bigger vocabulary. The more words that you have at your disposal, genuinely, the better your the quality of your thoughts is going to be. And this is why I've got such a love for language, right? Like I, I adore find, picking up bloviate, I discovered the other day, which I absolutely adore, which is kind of like someone that guffaws and talks a lot about uh, talks a lot about stuff without actually really saying anything, right? It's analogous to a ton of different words. But bloviate, I was like, that's cool. I now have a word that I can use for when someone is bloviating. But until I have that word, it's just a sense or it's me having to use another word which is analogous to that. It's a proxy for that, right? And um, yeah, not only does it does it make life richer, but it genuinely improves the quality of your thoughts. So I'm, I'm 100% on board with that. Yeah, it's almost like rather than having all these uh, like detailed lines of code, somebody's just put it into one function and then you can just execute <laughs> yeah. on that. Like it's, it's a much smoother, and that, if you look at the way, I, I'm not the guy to talk about software systems, but if you look at the way that those are going, it's constant um, abstract where they're making it easier and easier um, and they're chunking and chunking people's previous work. So yeah, it, ma- it makes sense that to be able to actually have a specific word as opposed to like a fluffy concept and then words within those words is a much precise and clearer way of um operating like one of the things i was thinking about and this is a bit a bit woolly but i the word time is itself quite deceptive and a bit of a proxy um i, I think obviously a lot of people in a weird situation right now where they're reflecting on how they spend their time day to day and you'll talk about oh well, I, I i work full time or i do xyz but time is life. Like that's what it is at the end of the day, but it's a proxy for the word life. And when you actually then like think about, let's say you're doing a full-time job that you hate, it's actually a full life job that you hate. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's your life, but I think time is itself like this weird proxy for the word life. And we almost, it's almost a lot more existentialist if you have to use the word life. And I think it's actually quite a useful tool to change those two words. Otherwise time is like this, this thing that you have like money and it's not it's it's just this it's all you've got and it's slowly pouring away and it may end at any second i guess <laughs> it's the one <laughs> as depressing as that sounds hey man if people don't want to be depressed they should listen to a different podcast um it, it's the one resource that you can't not spend as well right like you can save money you can save calories you can choose not to buy that coffee you can choose not to eat that cake you can't choose to not exist for the next hour it's like that time's going to be spent, so you just better choose that you spend it as well as you can. Um, what do we got next? What's up next? So one of the ones I've been thinking about, uh, because of everything that's going on, and I imagine a lot of people have experienced it, is like forcing functions. So something, it's almost, a lot of people talk about the, the wonders of freedom and the, the beauties of liberty, and I completely like, agree and love freedom and love liberty, but sometimes without sounding like I'm a BDSM kind of guy. <laughs> there's some uh, there's some there's some beauty to having restricted freedom in the sense that um, I always use the example, I know some lazy fuckers, like some really lazy people, including myself at times. But if they have to be at a job for 9 a.m., they will get up on time and they will attend. But as soon as that's taken away, they'll be getting up at 1 p.m., they'll get up at 2 p.m. And the only thing that's changed is of like a forcing function of what? Um, Daniel Gross is an example uh, with um, two examples. One with like YC demo day, like the ability, he says that a lot of Y combinators 
success, not success, but the reason, one of the, the beauties behind going through YC is that you have a deadline at the end of it. And as a result, the work just fits to that deadline. If that deadline didn't exist, it, it maybe takes two years, maybe takes three years. So that's like a, a hard forcing function. And he also says like one of the reasons why a lot of amazing technology, particularly in a defense space, comes out of Israel is because they have to, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like in the in the UK, like there's no or the US, there's not there's not as much attack on your like land or no I don't say danger, whether, yeah. Yeah. Um, no imminent danger, shall we say. So that's one of the reasons why like Israel has such a forcing function, but Israel doesn't produce Snapchats of the world. It doesn't really produce Twitters of the world as a result because they don't have whereas when you have that more relaxed freedom, they tend to produce that. But when you have a forcing function, um it can produce some amazing things. Like Peter Atia was even like even now, like the amount of companies who would never have in a million years let their employees work from home have now been forced to do it and are going, actually we don't need an office anymore. We're gonna go full remote. Like it's crazy as a result of this like forcing function that is a, a pandemic, I guess. Yeah. Shout out to Chris Sparks, forcingfunction.com. Um his uh he's a, a big lover of that. So how do you actually define what a forcing function is i think it I, I think it comes from the actual model itself probably comes from programming of like, it's something that you just can't uh you can't get past without doing a certain thing um but then the way you obviously chunk that for other areas is almost you're, you're forced to do a certain thing basically or or the pain of not doing it um is way greater than the the pain of of putting it off um so, uh, is that even right? The pain of not no, no, the pain of not doing it is way greater than the pain of of doing it. So, I think that's how I describe it. Or the pleasure of doing it is way greater than the pleasure of not doing it. So, just mm-hmm. real simple pleasure and pain incentives, which is another model, I guess. Uh, where does the incentive stack? But when you have like a deadline, even today, like like we'll like we'll dick around with like a podcast idea for ages. I refuse to do Skype interviews. Yeah, yeah, you are right, indeed, man. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about to do with that kind of forcing function and how it ties in is just Parkinson's law. I can't remember whether we brought this up last time and I don't even know if it classes as a mental model, but we're free flowing today. We can do what we want. Uh, Parkinson's law work expands to fill the time given for it. So it's the same reason that you don't do your university uh, assignment until the night before. It's the same reason that the project that you need in for work requires an all nighter to be pulled and I think um, using a forcing function like that, when you think about um, the YC days and, and things, it actually uh, f- requires you to focus on what the, the minimum viable product is as well. Like if you know that you've only got six weeks to complete this particular project for YC, you're not going to bother gesticulating for two weeks on whether the brand logo should be mostly red or mostly yellow. Like it's going to force you to focus on the things that move the needle. And when those degrees of freedom get expanded out, as you've identified right now, there's no boss telling you why you're not awake at 9 a.m. What did you call it earlier on? A, a furloughpreneur. <laughs> furloughpreneur, yeah. It's furloughpreneur, right now, yeah. which is just yeah. the best, the absolute best. Um, you know, when you don't have that, you don't have anybody who is the disciplinarian who's who's telling you to do these things. You realize, oh, hang on, actually, all the only reason I was overcoming my own inertia 
was because of this structure, this buttress, this scaffolding that was layered around my life. And I think that those increased degrees of freedom are causing people a lot of, and rightly so, they're causing people a lot of discomfort. As I've said on a number of different podcasts, I was taking a lot of pleasure in the beginning until I sort of checked myself and said, stop being a dick. I was taking a lot of pleasure with other people struggling to uh, self-discipline. I was watching people suffer with the same challenge that I faced as a a self-independent entrepreneur for the last 13 years. I was like, oh, so hard working from home, isn't it? Can't imagine what that's like. And then I checked myself and I was like, hang on a fucking second, mate. Like you need to, let's be a little bit more empathetic here. Like you shouldn't be taking pleasure at the fact that other people have stepped into your nightmare, you know? Like, <laughs> so, but it's, it's right. Increased degrees of freedom, fewer forcing functions. Yeah. It's, I, I just think that one of the things I always find actually like great content, um, is whenever you hear somebody say like when they, when they turn 30 or when they turn 40, when they turn 50 and it's even like a letter to their 20 year old self, 30 year old self, etc. One of the consistent themes seems to be like putting the proper things off or putting the things off that they should have done. And I think that for myself, something I probably don't do enough, but I think in, in general, a lot of the consistent themes when people talk about those regrets is that there wasn't enough forcing functions in place to actually get them to do it. It was always this pipe dream in the future. And I think that if we had more sometimes restricted freedom uh, in certain areas that we, we purposely do ourselves, whether that's putting up like a, a just giving fund because you're going to run a marathon or whatever it is, it actually works even though whilst you're doing it, you kind of hate yourself for actually putting yourself through it. But at the end, you're always like, thank fuck I did that. Mm. Um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful concept, even though it feels horrific at the time. That's a really, a really, really clever way of putting it together, man. Yeah, I mean, the, everyone that's listening has, has decided to obsess over the things that don't matter because it's a form of procrastination on getting onto the stuff that actually does. And, you know, for me with this podcast, like I've, I'm, I still feel like I got it out early like you know the start of 2018 by no one's estimations is early but by now like when you look at how many people are now bringing them out and how much more the podcast network is growing and stuff like that it feels early right but at the time i'd already messed around for six months i'd spent six months i'd gone through tons of different brands i'd played with different and then i came up with modern wisdom like at 3 a.m woke up and was like had this name and i was like yes finally got the name right now onto the logo and you're like bro like it doesn't matter people want to tune in because of what you say because of the content that you put out um and in reflection now i can say pulling the pin on that and just deciding to do it and messing up with the audio and messing up with the video and not having in support and not doing this correctly and doing all these problems right you're like over time right now i am so glad that past me did that because present me is reaping all of the rewards and you just iterate over time um what we got next what else you got on the on the menu um my one of my favorite ones at the minute and i love it when you have because the thing about the models as well is that it's sometimes just a bit fluffy until you have like real world examples that you can rest it on so global versus local maximum um again as i mentioned i've been going down a, a bit of a uh tobias lucky holder the shopify ceo and he uses uh, a great example to explain the global versus local maximum which i'll come on to but it's basically local maximum local maxima is operating so let's say for example um it would be focusing on optimizing one specific variable 
Um, so that may be uh, the the focus on getting the best exhaust possible for your car, constantly trying to optimize one percent gains for the exhaust when you realize you've not got a fucking steering wheel. <laughs> so you've got to you've got to sometimes whereas that's that's what the global maximum is of like looking like almost from an absolute objective perspective at the whole thing and then optimizing for that. So one of the entrepreneurs that doesn't get anywhere near enough um, attention because it's not sexy. And you'll realize this, like everybody knows who Mark Zuckerberg is, but nobody knows who the CEO of like Citibank is or Goldman, right? Like, because it's, it's way more B2B. It's not B2C. Um, but Malcolm McLean, do you know who Malcolm McLean is? No. Um, so basically he was the, the, he was the guy that basically came up with the idea of shipping containers. Um, he was a comic come at it. And this is where I'll often, uh, global maximum will come from at the time everybody was focused on getting faster and faster ships so we could uh basically create globalization as we know it now where you can get bananas from the other side of the world in january um and they were getting faster and faster ships and he was as a truck driver was one day on um i think it was thanksgiving was sat there in nine hours with cargo on his back waiting for people to get each individual box off and then back and he says why don't we just chunk it all together and you just take that off as a container and you can just place it on the ship and then you literally take, and then once the ship arrives, you can just take the one container, stick it onto um, a train or rail and ship it that way. And everybody basically laughed at him and thought it was a ridiculous idea because they were optimized on getting each individual box off at the time. And for some context of like how, um, how good this idea was um, at the time it was $6 a ton doing the previous method where and they was focused on the local maximum of trying to uh make the the ships go faster when he implemented what he did it went down to 16 cents a ton oh um God. so like it, it goes to show that and also instead of like a week for them to load a, a ship it was then eight hours for them to load a ship so you think about him as an individual on the global maximum perspective like the impact that have has on the world is insane like every trade everything imaginable the fact there's not a day named after him goes to show that if you're not b2c it's not sexy mm-hmm. you're rich and anonymous but um like for me alive? that is a perfect example now i think i think he's dead now because this is like um uh i think it yeah this is like the 50s when it began to come in place i think he's dead now okay. but um the but the shopify ceo he has a great example where he toby says that when he gets asked in the interview, um, I think it's on the knowledge project where he says, my whole goal as a, as the CEO is to assume right now that where we're at in modern day business, I'm at a six, maybe the best company in the world is like a six. The key, the goal is to get it to a seven. Um, and that's my life's mission to get to a seven. So he's basically working on the assumption that he's always wrong. And it's kind of true. Like if you look at sport, for example, if you look at, football or soccer or whatever you want to call it like the gap between the modern athletes and 40 years ago is just huge and you, but we we weirdly have this thing at the time where we assume that this is the best thing possible that the iphone is like is never going to get better than this but it always does and i think that the the first thing to do is assume that everything's wrong and your goal is to be to be less wrong and i think that then helps with potentially getting a nearer to a global maximum if that makes sense I love that concept, man. That's the first time that I've heard of it. It's kind of like a, a rate limiting step from chemistry as well, right? 
like which also ties into what we were talking about before, which is the weakest multiplied by zero. Like you're only as strong as your weakest link. Um, what did I have in my head there? I had one in my head. Oh yeah. Um, can you do uh, why it's important? Why it's better to avoid failure than to um, face success, or like why uh, like not being stupid is better than trying to be clever? I can talk about it, but I can't necessarily do it in action. That's for sure. Uh, um, yeah, I think, yeah, just, I guess looking at, yeah, things that are going to take you down. Um, it's something I've, I struggle with, but again, it goes back to that multiplied by zero. And I think, I think a model that's actually quite useful for identifying that. Um, I've been playing since quarantine, been playing a ton of chess. I'm still shit, but I've been playing a ton. Um, and there's, there's cool like lessons that come from that. Um, one which is that your like assumptions will your assumptions is everything and there's always the right move that was there the same way with the shipping container it wasn't like that idea didn't exist it was just that people's assumptions was that there was a better way to do it they was focusing on the uh, the local maximum rather than the global maximum um but there's a, a gary kasparov point which gary kasparov is one of like the, the best chess players of all time and i i think sometimes people extrapolate chess to life and there's loads of lessons you can take which i do think is partially true but partially bollocks but there are a few um and one of the ones that kasparov has is the way he used to analyze his games so let's say for example he made a mistake where he moved the bishop um to e4 um most people would come at it from analyzing that move. So they would go, okay, I moved bishop to e4 and then I got in a trap and I lost my bishop. Therefore, never do bishop to e4. And instead, what Kasparov, the way he analyzed his game and what he said was so different about his approach was to not just analyze the move, but analyze the thinking behind the move. Like, what did I have for dinner that day? What was I thinking about at the time? What assumptions did I have in my head? And you have almost this system mindset which is similar to systems versus goals but looking at things in a much wider system so like safi bakali talks about this where he uses the example of let's say you come home and you argue with your wife um after a, like a hard days hard days work worth of work about the dishes for example like almost thinking about the individual item or the the pawn to uh, the bishop to e4 would be okay i'm never going to bring up the dishes again but instead actually try and think about what what was the thinking before all that happened. And you go, oh, actually, the cause of the mistake was me coming home from work tired and angry, and I took it out on my wife. And the good thing, the genius thing about this is if you went from the perspective of, okay, let's not just use the, uh, let's never argue about the dishes again, and rather instead focus about the let's not come home from work angry or is that you prevent thousands of similar mistakes from happening rather than that just one. Again, that's an idea that is lovely in theory, but even harder to implement. And I'm not perfect at it at all. I'm awful. Well, it's much more scalable, right? And we were talking about this before we started, where I was saying about uh, strategies versus character and the fact that a lot of strategies supplement for poor character traits, you know? Like a strategy of only ever having three beers so that you never cheat on your wife is a strategy to ensure that you never cheat on your wife. But the character trait of being faithful to your wife is much more scalable, you know, regardless of how much alcohol you have. Now, that's not to say that you should still increase risk by having a bunch of booze when you're in a strip club or whatever it might be. Um, but 
the principle is the same. And I think it's kind of like this malignant side effect of the 21st century. And we contribute to this. I'm contributing to this and we're doing it right now that we give people these piecemeal solutions to what is a very global problem. It's like, if you work on your character, if you work on your values and your virtues, what is it that matters to you? What is the reason that you are here on this planet for? Like genuinely, as an existential, as terrible of an existential crisis inducing question as that is, like what is the reason for that? Because that, those values, those virtues, those um, non, non uh, compromisable reasons for your existence are much more scalable than having a strategy about like the best way i once read a book about how's the best to bring kids up therefore i'm going to follow this strategy it's like well yeah but where do you think that strategy came from that strategy probably came from people who loved their kids and did the things that were right for their kids so there's again like that marketing versus product thing there is a a combination between the deployment of a strategy and what is the essence of the reason that the strategy exists and can you combine the two can you deploy something which is effective and also have something to to back it up it's um yeah it's 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 much easier in theory um, and harder in practice there's that quote uh, i don't know if it's Taleb, but i know it might be yogi bear and Taleb uses it of um in theory there's no difference between theory and practice but in practice there is um and i think this ties me on to another thing i've been thinking about of the this is um a model that comes from i'm i'm a fan of him i even i think he steps sometimes uh sometimes i don't always like his content but i think on the whole i think he's actually fantastic and does a lot of good for the world which is gary v um uh and he has a concept called dirt and clouds uh which i think i actually like probably his best video um his best piece of content um which is the way he thinks about things is purely from a dirt and clouds perspective so the way he defines that for himself is the cloud is like the high-end vision of, and the high-end principles and the high-end character stuff that you were talking about. So for him, I think it's buying like the New York Jets and providing like unreal value to the world. And his funeral, I think Gary talks about this, he wants more people at his funeral than any other funeral. That's how he mm-hmm. defines every action by. And then the dirt for him is like the specific tactical things of so for him it'll be knowing that tiktok was a platform to get on before anybody else and he was investing a load of time on that or the reason why snapchat because he's got hands-on similar to the way rogan doesn't have a personal assistant that if you do have like a pa or with gary if he outsources it to everybody like the junior employees he's no longer in the dirt he's no longer relevant and he loses touch with things but the dirt and the clouds so like the high-end top level theory and then the pure execution the pure action and then he basically says everything else in the middle, which is where you can so easily spend your time, is just absolute garbage. Um, and it's much easier said than done to obviously only focus on the dirt and the clouds, but mm. the politics, the 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 the, uh, the nonsense, just spending time like doing passive things that you don't even enjoy is uh, is it's just just pointless. But the actual dirt and the clouds are the two the two most important things. Throwback to the first episode, gray area thinking, barbell strategy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you mentioned there, you, you couldn't work out whether it was Taleb or whether it was Yogi Bear or whatever it was. And I mentioned to you on the phone, I was going to, I was going to red pill you on this Churchillian drift. Have you heard of it? Oh yeah. No. Okay. I've been waiting. Churchillian drift is the term coined by British writer, Nigel Reese, 
which describes the widespread misattribution of quotes by obscure figures to more famous figures, usually of their time period. The term uh, connotes the particular agrariousness of misattributions to British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. And this is just so funny that it always slides up, right? It's never like John that has the ice cream van that came up with this thing. It's always like Taleb or Naval or there we go, another one for bingo. Um, it's always that. And uh, I find myself doing it as well. There's that quote that keeps on being attributed to Aristotle, which is, um, we are what we repeatedly do, excellence, therefore is not an act but a habit. Um, and that's supposedly Aristotle. But then if you actually dig into the etymology of that, particular quote you find that there's quite a lot of criticism and and sort of skepticism around who came up with it and richard shotton told me i can't remember the website i'll have to try and find it that there's basically an equivalent of like ancestry.com but for quotes and you can go back through the tree of where it first appeared and then you'll see it slide the the churchillian drift will occur over time as it gets attributed to like more more and more famous people but i think again with that that's probably uh, again another kind of malignant side effect of the 21st century that we presume that people who are in positions of authority and in positions of power are the only ones that can deploy wisdom you know on that uh on that note there's a bit in zero to one this is a this is a exact quote because i know he says this is peter teal says that uses that example where I think they talk about the quote is it where it's apparently that Einstein said compound interest is the eighth the, great wonder of the world or whatever. Yeah, eighth great wonder of the world. Um and obviously Teal goes on uh, on that point and he says that actually uh, it probably wasn't Einstein who said that, but he goes to say that that Einstein's brand was so good that comp- it's actually quite ironic that it obviously compounds after he dies that people are still misattributing quotes to him so it goes to actually show that compound interest is the eight wonder <laughs> of the world um but it's weird but on that note though like there is some weird like contagion that goes on where i find like i'll have ideas in my head about ways to behave or things that are true but and when i actually try and backtrace the source i may have like overheard it on a podcast or i may all say oh um you know, the uh, XYZ was created by this person. And then I just won't really think anything of it, but he acted really certain. And then I'll catch myself going, oh no, it was XYZ who created that, you know? <laughs> and, then I, and then sometimes I go, I've caught myself like sometimes making points and I go, that might not be true actually. And I have to, you sometimes have to call yourself out because you can easily, if somebody says stuff with enough confidence, you just pass it on. And then before you know it, it becomes, it becomes gospel. It's really weird. Mental fluency is associated with truthfulness, man. Say something with enough conviction and some minority of people will believe. If you want, a, the best example of that is Frank Abengale. Um, yeah. Catch me if you can. So obviously yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio did a film on him, but there's a talk at Google, Frank Abengale, um, where he basically tells his whole story. It's actually quite emotional. He talks about his lack of dad. He's obviously turned his life around now where he works for the FBI. And if you want to talk about like, the bit, you understand why he was the greatest con artist ever, just because of how well he he speaks with absolutely no self doubt when he tells stories. It's crazy. I think he says like "er" twice within the whole speech. It's inc- it's incredible. It just yeah. it's just 
this guy was pretending to be a pilot at the age of 16 or whatever, right? Like, <laughs> you can see why. So ballsy, man. But the right. thing, about, thing about that, sorry, I always had this interesting one, which is that the, the best con men, uh, everybody does this documentaries on like who the best con men ever were. Realistically, they, there's probably the best con men can't be in a documentary because still nobody knows who they are. <laughs> this is weird, like survivorship bias, right? That it's like the is, inverse. That is a really, con really good. Yeah, con men bias. Yeah, con men bias. What's next? What's next on the menu? What we got? Um, so in terms of, uh, what I've got here, um, th this is a bit of a weird one that I've been thinking about. Um, Weinstein brought it up in the Rogan podcast about this concept of like kayfabe, which is again, one I'm still struggling to wrap my head around, but we've seen it more and more. Um, and it kind of goes on to what we're talking about then about this weird contagion where professional wrestling is something that people know is fake, but people kind of still love it. And you're seeing it. I think you're seeing it at a political level with with Trump that you seem to have. Again, I don't want to go down a politics rabbit hole. So literally, if I start chatting about politics more than 30 seconds, just jump in and change the topic. But uh, you have him, for example, where you have some, obviously you have the like diehard believers, but you also have people who are his fans that know he's playing this weird game and that he's purposely saying things almost like from a marketing or a sales perspective. Um, and people almost, this kayfabe thing, like, almost applies to yourself. I find actually sometimes being irrational is actually a very rational strategy. Um, so let's say, for example, this concept of resistance, which comes from like the War of Art book, where Stephen Pressfield says like, procrastination is this external force that's trying to conquer you and defeat you. Of course, that's absolute bollocks. But I think interpreting it as true is actually an effective strategy. And there's probably nothing more, if something's effective, you could argue it's it, maybe it's irrational, but maybe it's the actually rational thing to do, and then it gets something done. Uh, you see it with professional athletes. Like, how many professional athletes are atheists? It's quite rare. And I think whether there's a god or there's not a god at war, probably believing that as you're about to go in an octagon and fight, or as you're about to go in a football pitch for a World Cup final, that God is on your side. Having that placebo in place is actually um, probably very, very useful. So, is that like a athlete's Pascal's wager? Kind of in a way, like so there's, there's benefits, there's benefits of irrationality. And, and we've seen it, we're seeing it more and more like this blur between, you see it with the, the fire festival, this whole like fake it till you make it, but sometimes that becomes, and I think there's a, there's a negative strain of it, which I think we need to avoid, but sometimes it can be used as a positive side of things of almost believing something irrationally, but it actually, actually works as an, uh, an effective measure. Yeah, well, I mean, it's be paranoid. It highlights, it highlights the fact that we are not perfectly rational beings. And the more that I read into evolutionary psychology um, and this book called Blindsight by uh, Prince Guman and Matt Johnson, holy shit, man. Like I had the guys on, they're just a small, just a couple of dudes. And um, it just shows how fallible we are. Our minds are completely just, they're useless. They're, you know, the fact that we don't just get hit by open traffic is a miracle as far as I'm concerned. And um, the more that you realize that, the more you realize that an irrational system trying to be fixed with rational solutions is probably not always going to work. And that when you add those two things together, you can manipulate the system into rationality by timesing irrationality by irrationality, as long as it's the right um, uh, levels of each, right? Um, a quote from Shane Parrish, actually, which was put on his uh, FS.blog newsletter, which kind of re relates to what you're talking about there. 
Tradition is a set of solutions for which we have forgotten the problems. Throw away the solution and you get the problem back. Sometimes the problem has mutated or disappeared. Often it is still there as strong as it ever was. That's Donald Kingsbury. That's fascinating. It's cool, isn't it? I, I, I yeah. think that kind of relates to a lot of what Jordan Peterson talks about as well, right? You know, he talks about these archetypes and these these kind of meta themes that have been with us for years or millennia. And um, when you read anything that's ancient but classic, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations or, you know, whatever it might be, you realize that the pro- the problems that you attribute as side effects of the 21st century are just inbuilt parts of our nature that everyone's been fighting with for forever. Um, and mm-hmm. I love, I really like that. Um, and that's another Rory Sutherlandism, actually. There's one for bingo for Rory Sutherland, um, which is that he says uh, the opposite, what is it about the opposite of a good idea, not always being a, the opposite of a bad idea also being a bad idea or the opposite of a, I'm going to butcher this. Give me one second. I know what you mean. This is Rory. I'm so sorry, bro. Here's me trying to trying to quote you, Rory Sutherland. Opposite of an idea. Let's see if this comes up. The opposite of a good idea can also be a good idea. That's it. Uh, don't design for average. It doesn't pay to be logical if everyone else is being logical. The nature of mm. our attention affects the nature of our experience. Thanks, Rory. Yep. Yeah, is it like a lot of because it depends how you define rationality? But if if you look at it almost as a, again, but rationality might be one of those words that has numerous words within it that we chatted about earlier. But some of the, the most rational people I know um, seem to end up with the most average or boring results. Um, whereas, because by very definition, they're often like following the crowd's logic and everything that make, looks perfectly logical at the time. So going back to the box uh, container example earlier. Um, so I think actually being a bit weird Again, it's a bit of a barbell. It can either go horrifically bad or horrifically right. Um, and I think that the, the, the religion in, uh, in professional sports is a, is a perfect example of that. And I think we need more and more weird people. Um, I think it's very, everybody seems to play this uh, point scoring game now online. Um, and I guess it's driven by like getting likes and getting uh, more and more followers that by very, by very definition, you need people who go completely against everything that's currently there to actually get the, the desire. Like if you look at like going back to the shipping containers, the reason why that's there is because you had a very, very stubborn man who looked like an absolute idiot to a lot of people. And I think we've seen the death of that. Um, Weinstein talks about this, where we have a focus on excellence now becoming the best at your craft. Whereas we don't have that many, rebels of people who actually go that whole craft is a load of nonsense we should be doing it this way instead we should like the guy the table tennis player i think we chatted about this previously who decided to put like foam on the on the bat and as a result he was like the worst player on the japanese team and all of a sudden he was the best the best of all time or you have like the fosbury flop um the the way now the high jump is now jumped as a result of him but he was mocked for a while um, and obviously now everybody does it that way. And I think that with social media now, it's a bit harder to be a maverick. It's a bit harder to be a weirdo. And I think we often chastise people for thinking differently. Like even like um, Elon Musk, whatever criticisms or play, praise you have of him, 
a lot of people at the minute are going like, look how erratic and weird he is. And they go, yeah, no shit. Like, do you not think it takes, no... imagine him like coming up with the idea of building like a rocket company. Like, he's clearly a weird individual, clearly like ha- doesn't pick up on like social cues as much as other people. Otherwise you don't get that result. So I do think irrationality obviously has its downsides, but a lot of people don't talk about its, its upsides. I love it, man. I, I don't know whether it's just the particular sliver of the world that I'm exposed to, but I'm not sure how much I agree with uh, people kind of uh, compromising themselves down to the lowest common denominator or, or popularity being kind of the, the first thing that they search for. I see now an increasingly burgeoning underground movement of people who are fully embracing their true nature um as long as it's legal uh, and coming up with ideas which are contrarian and not being afraid to put them out online now obviously there's particular spheres within which this can be a little bit more challenging politics or uh, i guess uh, rights as well law stuff like that um but in terms of worldviews, personal development strategies, things like that, you know, there's there's a million different iterations and, and subcultures of things that you want. Like if you wanted to spend a year in the desert with a piece of rope and a tarp and a, a bottle, a couple of bottles of water, there's probably out there a holiday company that would be able to do it for you and would keep supplying you with water or something like that, you know? And, um, as the market starts to reward people who don't just want to do the status quo, I think that increasingly people will feel more and more empowered to be themselves. And this is why I know you've got a particular soft spot for Eric Weinstein. I'll let you um, riff on that a little bit if you want to about why you think that he's so good. But having someone like Rogan, who is kind of on the surface, a very typical everyman alpha bro, who has this ridiculous reach, him giving someone like Eric or Lex Friedman, right? Like there's no way that Lex should have been on Rogan's podcast. He's been on like five or six times in the last probably 18 months, maybe. He's been on a ton. And now Lex has got his own ridiculously big podcast and he's getting cool people on and all this sort of stuff. And you're like, what? you know, Lex is definitely on the spectrum i absolutely adore him lex if you're listening i'd love you to reply to my email um but he's great but like why him you know and then you have someone who who permits these subcultures to to rise to the surface and the more that you have role models like that of people who are unapologetically just doing them you know, like, just do your thing, sister. Like, you, the more that you've got those people doing that, I think it sets a fantastic example for people moving forward. The, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that's one of the things that Rogan has done very well in the comedy space, but wider that he is the most probably positive son man on the planet. Like, he's, like, the amount of people who owe careers to him and, like, incredibly talented people, and it's, he's done a lot of good for the world and that he's constantly bringing people up, but it's not this negative son game because i think he quickly realized that attention is is everywhere and there's seven billion people on the planet so um providing more and more positive some i think is better a slightly nuanced note though is that and even you may have this to some extent that like you may try and be uh like the like the most become the most enlightened version of yourself but when you're under the name chris williamson and you have you still have your identity to protect you're still always playing a bit of a 
I, at least I, I know I have to, that you end up playing this bit of a weird ego game that you still have an identity protect, to protect. And often the, the best, going back to like either end of the spectrum, the best accounts on the internet, I'd say, and the worst accounts on the internet are often anonymous um, because they're then free to do things about their identity. And you have, like, let's say you look at Satoshi Nakamoto, like if the person who created Bitcoin was known, like he would either be, well, I, God knows what would happen. Like, I, I, there's a pur- I imagine there's a purpose reason why he or she did that. And I think it's worked out quite well. The same with like Jed McKenna, the writer. I think there's something about anonymity at times that people want to banish from social medias because of the trolling that goes on. But I actually think it's an incredibly important thing in protecting people's identity. And you can then be a bit weirder. And I think there's, I wouldn't be surprised if there's actually a lot of anonymous accounts out there of people who are very famous and well-known and they actually have sub- anonymous accounts as well um so you we can put out to, to play ideas. with different ideas in a sandbox so eric, safe. going back to that eric has this weird thing where when he's doing his like 18 hour map sessions uh trying to figure out the geometric patterns of the universe um he talks about it of um what's the um what's the condition where you can just sometimes say the wrong words and swear a lot do you know what i mean uh Tourette's. Tourette's. Yeah. Tourette's, yeah so he, he calls it like voluntary Tourette's. So you'll sit by a room in himself and you'll just, this is the weirdest thing ever. But he's, this is why he's great. He's so Eric, weird. Eric and he, doing an Eric. Just sit, and he's therefore like in the mindset of like just fully thinking different to everybody else. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. I love it, man. Um, what else? What else we got on the, uh, or do you want to do an Eric? Do you want to, do you want to riff on Eric for a bit or uh, do you want to, do you want to go into something else? No, I think I think um, one of the points I wanted to go back to, I just have it written down, I was chatting to you, is that when we went back to the leverage thing as well, one of the points I didn't make at the end, which is what Steve Jobs says, which is, we go back to the whole bicycle, the human on the bicycle being the most effective thing, which is that the, the internet or the computer, I think he says the computer at the time, is the bicycle of the mind. And I think that's one of the most beautiful ways of understanding like leverage of modern leverage and um i think that the yeah the, there's a lot of with everything that's going on there's going to be so many careers that come out of the internet and i'm just absolutely like fascinated by the space it's, it's beautiful to see yeah i agree man i think um it's going to be interesting to see what happens after this you know like it's all well and good having a global pandemic in a society that's in the early 1900s that can adapt a little bit of change, but not tons and certainly not globally. Um, But when you have a society which is able to move as quickly as ours is now and has technology, can do leverage, can have instant communication, you know, all that sort of stuff, the, uh, the pace of change when change is forced upon it kind of almost bounces back twice as hard you know what i mean it's like throwing the tennis ball at the wall and then the wall moving towards you like a tennis racket and whacking you back in the face with it so i think that'll be really interesting tell you one thing so this is only going to be probably for british people this is just something it's not even a mental model but it was something i was thinking about the other day while i was in the asda uh, self-service thing and i've seen tons of people complain right about how annoying that Asda self-service narrator lady is. So you can imagine if you're American, you're listening to this, you're in Costco or wherever it might be, like Target or something, and you're going through one of the self-service checkouts. And in Asda, you're going to have to imagine this. So you're scanning your stuff, and the lady's voice that says, thanks, that scan, now put it in the basking, uh, the bagging area, is so quick, and it does not stop, right? So you just got like, beep. 
thanks, that scan. And you're like, fuck, like, I don't want to hear it. And you're thinking, this is every single time. And you might have 40 items in your basket. Uh, for those of us that are AirPod Pros aficionados, it kind of doesn't really matter so much. Turn that, turn that noise cancelling on, boy. Um, <laughs> but, um, it, it's super annoying. And what I realised was, actually, that, because you can cut it off if you're super quick, so that could be programmed in to ensure that people scan their stuff, put it in the bagging area as quickly as possible because they don't want to hear that lady's voice. I'm like, Asda, you smart, smart <laughs> little guy. So clever. Even, even within that, you've got two things. You've got like second, third order consequences that come of like bugs and stuff like that. And you have like the psychological versus the, the logical um, where which is one of my favorite Rory Sutherland things, which I guess we briefly mentioned earlier, but how things are, you have the like engineering efficiency of like logic of one plus one equals two. Um, but then you have this weird psychological irrational world that human beings operate under. I'm not sure if it's still true, but when the whole Corona thing happened, there were reports that like the Corona beer sales like plummeted. Oh, bro, they're, they're worth, they're worth um, I think, it's like 100 million that they've gone down by and Americans were surveyed and over a third of Americans said that they would not buy a Corona beer for fear of infection. But this is one of the things that is purely psychological. Like you can see like psychologic that it, even like, I think the people who would say they wouldn't drink Corona anymore because I reckon you've got two forms of consumers. You've got the ones who are like consciously, like almost idiots who are like, yeah, I won't drink Corona. And then you've actually got a lot of people who, for whatever reason, they just, they may be less likely to buy it. I'm going to get a Sol. I'm going to fancy a, I fancy a Modelo now. Exactly. Yeah, there's no, exactly. there's no Modelo virus like, out there, yeah. is there? But it's weird, but that's a, that's a thing, isn't it? And that, like, you've seen that there where there's clearly no logic behind it. But in our heads, there is a form of logic. And I think that a rational community will often like, just dismiss that as stupidity and idiocy. But I think it goes to show a lot about the way we think and the way we operate. Well, it's really bizarre. We're also naturally risk-averse creatures, right? And, and rightly so. When you see or when you learn the multiplied by zero mental model that we dropped earlier on, like it makes sense. It makes sense to have an existential fear of walking out of your door. It makes sense to double check that that condom doesn't have a hole in it. It makes sense to make sure that you're wearing your seatbelt, you know? Like, of course it does. And that, again, it links into the quote from Shane Parrish. Tradition is a set of solutions for which we have forgotten the problems. Throw away the solution and you get the problem back. Like, that's why you have these things over time. And I, I spent my birthday this year in Athens. Um, so I, I spent it uh, cycling around Athens, seeing the Stoa Poikle, which is where Zeno of Citium created Stoicism. So Stoicism, Stoa is like a sort of building veranda type thing. And it's the Stoa. The Stoa Poikle is where Stoicism was created. So I'm walking through the gardens where Seneca and, and Plato would have walked right? And, and Zeno of Citium, which is like modern day Cyprus would have done as well. And I'm walking through there and I'm looking around and we went on this amazing tour. Anyone that goes to Athens, the mythology tour is fantastic. And um, you're looking at these ancient uh, stores and, uh, and buildings and you go see the Acropolis, right? And you go up and there's the Temple of Nike and the Parthenon and all that sort of stuff. And um, you're looking at the stories that are displayed in these huge... 
sculptures and all the different all the different elements that are, that are parts of these stories and you realize you're like hang on so much of what they're talking about here are universal universally applicable laws the things which then maybe they were symbolic perhaps there was something that was only believed in a very narrative sense everything was personified right because it was stories there wasn't uh, a certified fact checking you know there was no um what's that fact checking website for when people have rumors not wikipedia the other one i know i know Sp- uh, about snopes this. snopes yes yeah, like, there's no there's no like ancient snopes or whatever just a bunch of stone tablets that you can go through <laughs> um but I was just walking through and it really, really made me appreciate standing on the top of the Acropolis, looking out over Athens, seeing all of this sort of beauty and wisdom, but symbolically. And I think in like a hyper-rational society, what happens is that we discard the wisdom of the past. And like, There's been people around for a lot longer than you. And I know that there's value in science and I know that there's value in logical and reduction, uh, like reductionist reasoning. But there's been a lot of minds working at this for a long time. I also think that you mentioned then that you discard the wisdom of the past. I also think when you're so consensus focused or so Taleb uses that example of the um, absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. And you realize it's like people like quote, like there's no study for that, bro. There's no study for that. And you've seen like, like with all the health crisis going on, like how this thing's constantly changing and people who were saying things three months ago are now wrong. And now, now that's wrong and it's constantly changing. But I think, to go back to the whole momentum models. So not only do you discard the wisdom of the past, you also discard, and probably even more importantly, or, or at least equally or significantly importantly, the the wisdom and the value of the future, of future trends as well. Because I think that, let's say, if in 2009, somebody was talking to you about cryptocurrencies, you go, what are you on about? Like It was just so against the consensus. And if you have such a closed mind of, where there's been studies so far or where Goldman Sachs are putting their money. You're like you're just always going to get average results because you're following the crowd. And don't get me wrong, it may actually be a safe investment strategy. Uh, you may just get normal, you know, you know what I mean? You never go to zero. So at least you at least you might be safe. Um, but you you rarely ever get to see like specific knowledge, like the in- intricacies of like frontiers and and nuance. And that's why I love hanging around with like curious people because You'll find like you will tell you like the weirdest new thing that's happening. So like an example of this would be let's say you got into like Facebook marketing in 2010 when it was like seen as this like fad. Like why you why would anybody advertise next to a farm bill thing and a photo of like somebody's relationship status? That was such a, a weird thing. But if you would have been on that frontier and been that weirdo, that you had so much future value. And I think particularly for young people, like there's so much value on being on the edge of frontiers as opposed to going and as you've seen now with the everything that's happened like actually a job at, at Deloitte or a big consultancy firm might not be the most like the safest option actually it might the 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 riskier option is often in taking like no risks and I think the edge of uh the edge of specific knowledge um is fascinating and I think that we have to be a bit weird man I uh I absolutely love that. I think as well, like we keep on harping on about it and we did on the first one and I created an entire video off the back of a quote about you, uh, what you set me on thinking about weird people and the way that we are and stuff like that. Um, but I really do hope that some of the things that we talk about do kind of give people the license to embrace their own uniqueness and their own 
individuality. And again, like this isn't for either of us to say, like both of us know that we're just fallible shaven chimps, right? And that we're totally like not, not even slightly actualized and we haven't got a clue what's going on. But one of the things that I do know is true in this life is that your unique offering to this world is your power. Like there is no one else by definition who has your life experiences and your genetic makeup and has inhabited all of the different space, the particular spatial coordinates that you have. It's impossible. It hasn't happened. Therefore, by synthesizing all of those things, by synthesizing the way you were brought up and your traumas and your predispositions and your fears and your joys and your successes and everything, by adding that together, that is your competitive advantage that is how you move the needle in the world and in your own life so on that like one of the my going back to leverage a little bit is like the mental model of almost like a judo throw of like using something's own momentum against itself and therefore you apply a, a lot less force and the biggest thing and certainly i've struggled with and i think most people do of you don't want to be out of the crowd you don't want people to think you're weird you don't want people to think you're a loser um, it's just so socially conditioned and probably biologically programmed. But almost to flip that on its head and go to yourself, I almost have a razor in place, which is if people don't think you're weird, if people don't aren't like snidely laughing about you a little bit, uh, you're probably or most definitely not taking enough risks. And that's fine. Like if you if you just if you just want to if you just want to fit in, that's fine. But you almost have to reframe that to yourself to try and judo throw that social conditioning, that biological programming and go, if I, that's not happening, I'm by de very definition, I'm just fitting in with the crowd. I'm not taking any risks at all. So is that McGill's razor number two, the weird, the weirdness <laughs> razor maybe? Releasing more razors than Gillette at the minute. But oh, yeah, look at that mic drop. I love it. So there's this, <laughs> there's this quote from Atomic Habits that James Clear's got. And I always come back to this. I uh, changing your habits often requires you to change your tribe. Each tribe has a set of shared expectations. Behaviors that conform to the shared expectations are attractive. Behaviors that conflict with the shared expectations are unattractive. It's hard to go against the group. Often changing your behaviors requires you to change your tribe. So a lot of the time there, and I'm a big sobriety advocate, right? And this is one of the things that I actually use. It's a razor technically that I use to work out whether your friends want the best for you and whether you should stay friends with them. It's like, if when you start to enact behavior change and grow, your friends don't support you, instead they get triggered by the fact that their own uh, shortcomings are being identified by your growth, you are in a, the wrong group of friends. Like, the, the the opportunity for you to do a podcast the first thing that i think is fuck i want to listen to that i want to subscribe to that i want to help you we've been talking about how to do your audio about how, what mic you need to buy about what webcam you need to buy yeah. all this sort of stuff right like i want that for you because i don't feel threatened by your growth i feel like if you were to grow that it would not only grow me but i just want the best for you right there's a lot of people out there who have friends that that don't want the best for them yeah, it's true. Or, or sometimes it's not even what they're best for them, but their conditioning may be so different. Like I keep seeing great tweets of like, if you post, oh, I've just started my master's or I've just started another degree, like, or I've just, I've just graduated, which I think I, I swear, who doesn't graduate unless you drop out? Like, how do you fail? Like a modern non-STEM degree is insane. Like it's, it's harder to fail than it is to 
that it is ass right. But if you post that on there, I don't mean to like yeah. like be too rude or anything, but if you post that on there with your certificate, like everybody gets hundreds of likes and it's like this every graduation day, there's this big thing about it. But realistically, when you break it down to first principles, you've entered a, a horrific amount of debt to get a piece of paper, which it, I don't think is as meaningless as like the full college, anti-college or university people make out because there's definitely like social value, et cetera, et cetera, that I think online courses have not been able to do yet. But if you then contrast that with when friends like say, I've just launched this new business and it gets like four likes and people will even like you, when people like, invite them to like the Facebook page, people even see the page and not like it. Like yeah. it's really weird, but I think that's because it's way seen outside the box to try and start something like that as opposed to hey, I've got this degree, we've all got degrees that we like this, therefore we're all in this same matrix together and it all makes sense. Because if, if you've got it, I've got it, it's all working and let's ignore the debt. Uh, yeah, so it's almost like, um, what's that thing when when comedians aren't that funny but they get, the, the audience claps because they agree? So they don't, they say something that's like you've got like a super sort of lefty crowd or whatever and you say something that criticizes Trump or you've got like a super righty crowd and you say something that criticizes like Bernie or whatever. And it's not actually that funny, but it's just like... Identity game, yeah. Yeah, kind of playing like that. And you're right, it's like the same thing. I had this tweet the other, a couple of months ago that hit the nail on the head about that, man. Like people need to gas their friends up more. Like they have to do it. And there's no other alternative word for it. Gassing your friends up is exactly what the, the term should be, regardless of how colloquial or particular you want to be about it. If your buddies start up a business, like support them. It's fucking mad how many people will share a new Rihanna X humor collaboration video. Like, oh my God, <laughs> yes, queen. And you're like, bro, your buddy just opened a coffee shop that's a mile away from your house and you've never been. Like, what, I see- what are you doing? I think two notes though to judo throw that against itself is to almost because you is to then say for the person who let's say for example you you're doing something yourself and then they're sharing rihanna's new uh underwear uh, uh underwear range right freudian, which I, which freudian, I did, freudian which I, slip there george i did share myself actually um <laughs> yeah. but um first judo throw it against itself and just i imagine this is how i'd least try and think whether it's i can actually put it in practice is different of okay it's a good filter of actually who your friends are so it's almost a positive thing in a sense but i think i i just think it so much of it comes down to yeah what's what's expected and what isn't expected and the the conditioning conditioning that goes on and it's it's uh really yeah really bizarre yeah man look George, we made it, man. Mental Models 103. Have you got anything else that you need to get off your chest before we finish? No, I think I think that's uh, that's pretty much it. I just, yeah, any, I guess the biggest takeaway is if you can be a bit weirder and you can have people laugh at you more. Um, and I think I say this out loud because it then tries to encourage me to do it a bit too. Um, I think that the world would be a bit of a better place. Um, it's probably it, really, as, as cliche as that sounds. No, man, I, I absolutely agree. So what's your Twitter now? It keeps changing. Um, no, it's the still say it's George Mack. George underscore underscore Mack. George underscore underscore Mack. You need to go and follow him. Um, you're going to be tweeting, I'm sure, over the next few weeks as uh, as more interesting stuff comes in. I've noticed an up, an up regulation in your, in your tweeting recently, a tiny little bit more. Quarantine gives you more time to think. So, yeah, um, <laughs> thank you so much, man. You know, this... Uh, I absolutely do adore having you on and it it makes me feel very gratified that uh you're number one 
You know, we got all of these guys. There's no reason, apart from the bot farm, but there is no reason that you should be number one. You know, like there's no re- you're up against like the biggest guys on the planet, Douglas Murray, you know, Robert Greene, five times New York Times bestselling author, and then just sat at the top is just some guy from the middle of the UK. Who the fuck is that guy? Oh, yeah. the fuck is that guy? <laughs> it's, George, it's George underscore underscore Mac on Twitter. That's who it is, ladies and gentlemen. Look, man, thank you so much. Thanks, I'm sure man, that we will man. be back with Matt mental models 104 the link to george's twitter and anything else that we find that's interesting will be linked in the show notes below george man thank you stay weird much love see you later chris thank you for having me